coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. The GNU Privacy Guard has just patched a dangerous side channel attack that may have leaked your private key. Then, last week, the Nasdaq may have leaked some test data, but some real-world news organizations picked it up, and it caused just a little bit of a panic. We discuss. And we have the fascinating story of a security researcher who managed to take over all .io domains with a little sleuthing and a few choice domain name registrations. And this week, Dan's got so much stuff, we've got a brand new What's New with Dan segment. Plus, of course, we've got your feedback, a rockin' roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 327 and has been live-streamed on July 11th, 2017. It's brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week, and pretty much every week, is that BSD badass you all love. That's right. It's my friend Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hello, everybody. Here we are. Woo! Time for TechSnap, everyone's favorite part of the week. At least it's mine. How are you doing this week? Mm, Wednesday nights are better for me. Uh, Yeah, probably so. Less work involved. Well, it's dining under the stars. Dining under the stars? That sounds romantic. This is the 10th year that my little town has done this, and I wasn't here from the beginning. But uh, it all started off with one restaurant uh, saying, hey, let's put our tables out in the streets and Mm -hmm. close down the main road. Oh, cool. That sounds like a lovely scene. Everyone out and about, having dinner and drinks and being sociable. Now more people come in to dine on a good Wednesday night than live here. (laughs) Hey, that's good for the uh, local economy, too. Oh, yes. Excellent. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, you got anything you want to share? Or should we jump right into our first story? Uh, no, we're going to cover that, uh, before we go into the feedback. I got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. Excellent. All right, then. What's up first this week? Um, 1024-bit encryption. It hasn't been cracked, but one particular implementation of, uh, PGP has been cracked. And now I say PGP because that's a published algorithm. And um, I do like uh, how these researchers managed to crack it. Uh, they knew that something could leak, but then they found out that if they go in the other direction, it leaks even more. Uh, and astute r- listeners will have seen all the libgcrypt, I forget the actual library, uh, libgcrypt library. I remember upgrading my stuff earlier this week and... I didn't actually know about this when I was upgrading it. I just got notifications that, hey, this is wrong. Make sure you upgrade it. And so I upgraded it. <clears throat> Pardon me. But as this goes, l- l- let's start off with the um, um, with the first bet. It's actually in GNU PG crypto library. So that's G. Uh, most of you know it as GNUPG. So security boffins have discovered a crit- critical vulnerability in a GNU PG cryptographic library that allowed the researchers to completely break RSA 1024, completely break it. They got the private key. 
This is not just seeing a little bit of it. This is getting the whole private key and successfully extract the the secret RSA key to decrypt data. So anyone using RSA 1024 with this tool, it was all out in the open. It has since been fixed, but it was all out in the open. So what is this tool? It's a popular open source encryption uh, library used by many operating systems from Linux and FreeBSD to Windows and Mac OS X. And it's the same software that Edward Snowden used to keep his comms secure from law enforcement. So thankfully, they didn't have this break then. Or did they? So the vulnerability labeled CVE-2017-7526 resides in the libgcrypt cryptographic library used by GNU-GP, which is prone to local flush and reload side channel attack. (sighs) That's a mouthful. Now... I'm not going to go into what that side channel attack is, but a team of researchers, and this was widespread. It was from um, one, two, three, four, five different universities found that the left-to-right sliding window method used by LibGCrypt for carrying out the mathematics of cryptography leaks significantly more information about exponent bits than for right-to-left So left to right leaked more than from right to left, allowing full RSA recovery. So just be thankful that the good guys found this. Yeah, very much so. Um, So how how they describe this is level L3 cache side channel attack. This is a separate attack, not the one that they use requires the attacker to run arbitrary software on the hardware where the private RSA key is used. The attack allows an attacker to extract the secret crypto key from a system by analyzing the pattern of memory utilization or the electromagnetic outputs of the device that are emitted during the decryption process. But, sorry, I said this was not that attack. It it is this attack. I I thought they were talking about a different one the first time I read this, and I got that wrong. So, thus in practice, there are easier ways to access the private keys than to mount this side channel attack. However, on boxes with virtual machines, this attack may be used by one VM to steal private keys from another VM. That seems huge in today's, you know, massive cloud deployment world. And that's exactly the kind of thing that you, you know, you, you, you don't think about necessarily you should, but like yes. you don't have control over the hypervisor situation. You, you're like, OK, well, we're, we're isolated guests, but maybe not, especially with these crazy side channel attacks. It gets worse. Oh, no. What's better than 1024, 2048? Yeah. You'd think that would be mm-hmm. better. So, but it's not. They were able to decrypt one in eight keys of, wow. of 2048 so even 2048 was at risk right which should be significantly you know more secure but no so libgcrypt i have trouble with that word <laughs> libgcrypt has released a fix in version 1.78 if you're using anything less than that you better get it updated um The announcement was interesting. They say, note that this side channel attack requires that the attacker can run arbitrary software on the hardware 
where the private RSA key is used. Allowing execute access to a box with private keys should be considered as a game over condition anyway. No, I disagree with that because people have keys on shared boxes all the time. Thus, in practice, there are easier ways to access the private keys than to mount this side channel attack. I disagree with that. However, in boxes with virtual machines, this attack may be used by one VM to steal private keys from another VM. So that's all out there in the open. So, yeah, sure, you should have your private keys on your personal box that no one else uses, but that is not always the case. Right. No, yeah, it definitely isn't. And I mean, I think that would require a lot of a lot of changes to a lot of systems, you know, especially even if there's a, a background process using a key that that user has no access to, side channel attacks make that vulnerable. So you'll start having to do things where you have extra hosts or layers of API wrappers or things like that just to get around so you won't have, you know, one key on a box where some user that isn't authorized would, would might need to do something else. That's, that's pretty onerous. It's a big deal. It's, it's not trivial. Mm-hmm. Not trivial at all. So basically... The article concludes with, you are strongly advised to check if your Linux distribution, forget about all the other OSs, is running the latest version of the libg crypt library. But yeah, I'm glad the good guys came out with that and put it all out. Um, If you read the PDF that comes with this, there's some very interesting graphs and... Uh, it goes into a lot of detail that I did not even pretend to read. But there are pretty pictures. Oh, yeah, very pretty pictures. Take a look at these. Nice graphs. Yep. There's a whole, I mean, it's like it's a whole whole paper here kind of explaining it. Shows you some it's of the math. It's 21 pages of here. magic. Yeah, exactly. Which is awesome. Wow. It's, it's neat that this can all be done, you know, out, out in the open. We can talk about it here. Was there any mention about uh, how how old this vulnerability was? How long has this been been out there? I did not read that. Did you see anything about that? No, I, I didn't. Not in my not in my my readings. Either. I did not. I did not read the read the code to find out the um, the blame list or anything like that. That is interesting. Maybe it's just always been wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or no, they, these folks have found that left to right is more vulnerable than right, right to, to left, left or vice versa. Right. So. Maybe it was previously assumed that everything was okay, and what this fix is is to somehow mitigate that. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not a coding error, but just it's always been vuln. That's interesting. All right, I'll have to do some more reading after the show. This, that's uh, that's interesting, and it's one of those things that, at least in the open source world, you know, I kind of take for granted that there's a lot of things I'm, I'm questionable about trusting. But GPGs generally been been pretty good, and a lot of people have relied upon it for you know for secure things. A lot of tools. Uh, things like pass or other things are all built on it fundamentally. So, and a lot of people use GPG keys to sign things. And it makes you wonder if there's vulns and other stuff that we're using. Right. Yeah. That the smart guys have figured out and are using against us or on the bad guys. Hopefully. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hopefully. Okay, yeah. Exactly. Hopefully, only against the bad guys. Uh, we can cross our fingers and hope. Anything else you want to add about this besides uh, Um, go get your patches? Check your systems to see what if you have this library installed, make sure you update it. Because if you're using it, you're exposed. Yeah, exactly. You are not as secure as you think you are, a.k.a. not secure at all. Exactly. 
with that, I guess it's time that we move on to our first sponsor of the evening. That's our friends over at IX Systems. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. There you will find one of the premier systems retailers, builders, server experts, storage experts, just in the whole in the whole business. You'll be amazed. First, first, they'll slam you with this free report, the ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source software. And you may think, hey, what are they talking about? Do they know what they're talking about? Yes, they do. They've been in this for a long time. They've seen the dot-com booms come and go and bust. And IX Systems has, has stayed there with us because they know what they're doing. There's a lot of huge companies that really trust them. You've probably heard about them from their work with the FreeNAS Mini. Or, or... Maybe you're a fan of the OpenZFS file system. They are too. They can they help out with its development. They contribute a lot. You'll see them at the conferences. You'll see them at all these things. They're involved in the open source community. They get it. And they have expertise to help you build amazing servers running incredible Intel processors that are ready for whatever workload you want to throw at them. So, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That's where you can get started. The guide to open source software, it's really handy. And it just shows you, you know some of the considerations that you might need. It's just a really helpful white paper. If you need more than that, though, just give them a call. You're not going to be put on hold. You're not going to go through endless support loops. You're not going to get told that, oh, no, I'm sorry, we can't give you that, or that's just not possible. IX Systems has some of the best sales engineers, customer service in the industry. They treat customers right. They treat them right the first time, and they know what they're talking about. These guys are talented engineers, engineers first, really, and they're ready to help you solve the hard problems that you're interested in. Whether that's just, you know, reliable storage and backups for your home small business, or, hey, maybe maybe you're NASA, you've got petabytes of storage, and you need some way to store it, access it, work with it, and process it. It doesn't matter. They've done it all. They're prepared for it. And they can help you. You don't need to know how many IOPS you need. They can work with you to figure that out. They've got these experts. They know, is that motherboard going to fit? Can I get that kind of processor with this chipset with that feature list? Because of their great relationship with Intel and other providers, they can get that information. They can help you make the right decisions the first time so you're not wasting money. And if things go wrong, you know IX Systems is going to be there to provide you excellent support. They do the kind of white glove service you just don't see at other providers. Things like burn-in testing for all of your hard drives. You know They're, they're most likely to fail within the first few, first few days. So IX Systems make sure they've already done that. If they're going to fail, they're going to fail there, get replaced, and you'll never see that problem in production. They'll ship it to you. It'll show up right at the data center, ready to be racked, installed to your specification, and you can trust that they know what they're doing. Take a look at the companies they've worked for. Take a look at their white papers. You will not be disappointed. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Get started on your next beautiful server today. And thank you to IX Systems for sponsoring this here TechSnap program. All right, Dan. Uh, I think it's time for the next story today. What do you have for us? Um, do you, do you, what movie was it? Paul Newman was in, in a movie called The Sting. Yeah. And one I of the things they did, one of the things they did was uh, horse racing. They sort of broadcast it over the radio, but it was from the, the back room. It was that, a that fake was horse, the, ra- horse race. Yes. And that, that's how they, how they faked. So, um, that reminded me, this next article reminded me of that. Just, just now, I was about to start talking about it. So what happens at the end of the day with NASDAQ? They send out test data to, to all their um, providers. What did somebody accidentally do? Post that test data on, on their live system. 
And as a result, it made some stocks more valuable than Apple, and it made all the prices of Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft were all set to $123.47. Is that all of right? Them. That's all of them. wild. So imagine you see these shares drop like that. You're going to start buying right away. And uh, there were trades that happened based on this. But um, the tweet that came out was interesting. If you, you can look, look at Amazon going up, 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 and then there's this huge drop way back down to 2010 levels. Can That's, you imagine as an investor seeing that and just being like, okay, I, have to, you know, I, need, to, I need to sell or buy or whatever, like my portfolio, I have to take care of it. What's yep, happening? Yep, yeah. That's mm-hmm, wild. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't take them long to figure figure out that this was not right because sometimes prices drop 5% or 10%, but they don't drop like this. Um, the way they describe it, and this is from the Financial Times, which is a link paywall, I'm sorry, but they say, they call it a data glitch. No. A data glitch briefly made online games group Zing, Zynga more valuable than Goldman Sachs when prices prices of a host of NASDAQ-listed stocks, including Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft, were reset to exactly $123.47. Now, most of those stocks are worth way more than that. So, what is interesting is that the prices on NASDAQ's official website appeared unaltered, but those shown on financial data services, including Bloomberg, Reuters, and Google, did show the price changes to 123.47. It actually says Thompson Reuters, um, but from the old days when I worked at Bank of New Zealand, I knew it as 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 Reuters, 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 Reuters. There Sorry. you go. There we go. So the New York Stock Exchange was unaffected. And so the way they say this is at the end of the day, after trading, they send out test data. And some vendors took that test data and put it out as live prices. NASDAQ said the glitch did not affect any market trading, including office hours, but we know that's not true. However, traders in Hong Kong said they saw a handful of trades reported at these prices, although many deals were subsequently canceled. So I think NASDAQ is is saying it did not affect any market trading, but trades occurred, but then they were canceled. So it actually did happen. It did get out there, and I'm sure people were panicking or absolutely gleeful at, at what was happening and were ready to cash in. But... Sadly, they were all canceled, and nobody got those great valued stocks at those prices. Yeah, but boy, what a what a shakeup! And I'm sure that would really like throw your your whole day. And it's the kind of thing you don't. I don't know. When was the last time we saw something like this happen in that that sector? Generally, this stuff is you know it, it's treated very carefully because of the amount of money that's involved. Um, a lot of trading is just done by computers anyway. Yeah, right. So as soon as they would have said this, they would have bye 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 bye. Ah, exactly. some of my stuff is worth nothing. It's it's come a long way from that world of you know having a bunch of humans involved in these decisions to uh, mm-hmm. you know you've published mm-hmm. some things to an API, which yes. not an API somewhere else is scraping and pulling and yikes. Um, now what? What you you mentioned something about uh, when was the last time this happened? Um. Do you, do you have the 
the um, article up? Yes, I do. Because if we scroll down to it, yeah, there's the ten. If it falls by ten percent, now didn't they have a graph at the bottom? I'm just wondering if if I'm remembering correctly. I don't no, see it. No, okay. Besides, this is a cached article. It may not have everything. Um, well, I, I remember. Uh, oh yes, I remember now. They they think it might have had something to do with the July Fourth weekend. Or the July 4th holiday. Interesting. And this Twitter tweet came up on July 3rd at about oh, 8.03 p.m. So given that it was a holiday or something, this is why they're thinking it happened. But if that's the case, why doesn't it happen on all the other holidays? There aren't a lot of holidays in the middle of the week. Usually they're Fridays or Mondays or something like that. So... I don't know why it if it if it was sent out normally why and, and someone made a mistake why did it affect so many places why, why did it affect three were named here Bloomberg uh, Reuters and Google why did all three display the test data why did all three make the same mistake So it makes me wonder, you know, was this really test data? Right. Or was there, yeah, is there some, some big master switch in the back here? Or what's really happening? And what is the, what is the structure of those relationships really it, look like? It doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like the whole story came out. Right. Now those things where you've done it, it, it was like, no, oh, yep. It was no, the quote is, it was no error by NASDAQ. Some vendors took test, test data and put it out as live prices. But you're right. How would multiple, like, I can see one organization, right? You're like, oh, I yes. put in the, the test key yes. instead of the prod key. But how would yes. multiple do that? If it was just mm. one, the, I would accept this explanation. Yes, totally. But when it's three, hmm. they all made the same mistake? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's something. You're then, right. There's some gray area in this. But then why didn't it affect more people? Right. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. Maybe we'll see some updates in uh, future yeah. episodes. Anything yeah. else to add on this one? Uh, I'm glad I didn't trade on it. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You didn't. You didn't panic, and you. I'm see, sure like, there are a lot realized, of day traders. At least in the tech world, like before, uh, you know, before the tech world invested, they saw this kind of thing. But I'm sure in other circles, uh, maybe not. <laughs> uh. All right. Well, if you want someone who takes their APIs seriously, head on over to our next sponsor this evening. That's our friends over at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean are one of the leading cloud service providers. You can spin up a brand new droplet in under 55 seconds. And if you get started with our promo code, SnapOcean, you'll be happy you did. You get a $10 credit. So whether you want to run the latest Fedora release, FreeBSD, an Ubuntu LTS, or or whatever server suits your needs, you know you'll get it super fast, super easy, with a beautiful, dog-fooded, ready-to-use API over at DigitalOcean. Boom, they've now got the availability, you know, high CPU droplets, out of beta. It's live for your use. You can use them. You've got a bunch of number crunching. You're trying to crunch through some, some big data. You've got a, uh, a Spark pipeline. Whatever you're doing, DigitalOcean is ready. They've got object storage in beta now. I'm super excited about it. They've been quickly adding all throughout the year, last really the last couple of years, things like load balancing, 
attachable block storage, monitoring, all these things, it's becoming a place where, you know, it's not, it's really not just just a VPS anymore. It's not one of these bargain basement VPS places. No, they've got a rich, featureful API. They've got the kind of cloud infrastructure, infrastructure as a service kinds of products that you've come to expect from some of their bigger competitors, but they do it in a much easier way. It's super simple. It's super clean. Everything they do from their UI to their documentation to the work with the community, it's all first rate, out in the open, transparent, and easy to use. They've got one of the best UIs in the business, partially because it's built on their great API, which is simple easy to use, and they have great prices. It's super transparent right there. It says it right there, simple, transparent pricing. Always know what you'll pay per month. For me, that's huge. I've spent on you know on several different cloud providers sometimes, and DigitalOcean is by far the clearest. It makes it super simple to budget for, to understand what you're going to do, and they're just great prices. Look at this. For $20 a month, you've got two gigs of memory, two CPUs, and this is KVM virtualization here, 40 gig SSD disk. It's all SSDs over DigitalOcean. They were some of the first to embrace that. Places where you only had terrible rotating disks on some other cloud providers we won't name. No. DigitalOcean came out first. They've had it the whole time. SSDs. And you've gotten three terabytes of super fast, 40 gigabit right to the hypervisor, real transfer. That's one of my favorite things about DigitalOcean. I'll use it as a proxy all the time. You just want to download some file quickly and then transfer it locally to your your box or just cache it there. They've got great network connections, high-performance CBUs, pretty much everything you need to build the next, you know, the next service that you're trying to offer, the next startup that you want, or just a local place. You want to run, uh, you know, an IRC bouncer, IRC server, host, host some mail, whatever you need to do. DigitalOcean's ready to do it. They they have the distros you want. They've got the community stuff with their with their editors. They employ real editors to take community submissions and make them great documentation. All these things combined to make DigitalOcean really the perfect place to get started. Go over there, use our promo code SNAPOcean, and get started with a beautiful new BPS of your dreams. Thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right, Dan. Let's come to our final main segment story today. This one's, this one's a doozy. Tell us more. Dan, where'd you go? You're on mute. We can't hear you. Uh-oh, oh, we've lost Dan. I muted myself while I was coughing. Sorry. No, you're welcome back. We're glad to have you. All right. Starting again. A few weeks ago, we talked briefly about DNS and yeah. how it's distributed and how it was like a phone book. But I remember the days when you had to, when you called, I think it was directory assistance, when you wanted to get a number for someone in a remote city, and they would actually read, you know, there's a time when they read, would read the number off to you, and then they get a little more automated, and they would say, please hold for the number. Then a computer would read out the number for you. But imagine if you could hijack that phone book and redirect all the phone calls for, I don't know, pick some big online you know, phone reseller and redirect all your competitors' calls to you. Well, that's effectively what this guy did with uh, .io, which is a pretty common, heavily used domain. Basically, he was able to hijack three, no, four of the .io domain top-level servers, DNS servers. So basically, four out of the seven servers he was able to take control of. Not so much take control of, but register the names and direct the DNS to his servers. 
So his servers would be answering this stuff. Now, that sounds like a pretty hard thing to do, um, but it turns out it wasn't that difficult. So previously, he talked about taking over the .na, uh, .co.aao, and .it.ao domain extensions with varying levels of DNS trickery. So in that write-up, we examined the threat model of compromising a top-level domain and what some avenues would look like for an attacker to accomplish his goals. One of the simplest methods that he found was to register a domain name of one of the TLD's authoritative name servers. And that, that's very straightforward. I mean, if your top-level uh, if your top-level domain's name server is in a domain that you don't tightly control and say you forget to renew it or you slip up and forget to restrict registrations on it, bang, you've got, you're in. So the, the quote from the previous article that we should go over here, this avenue was something I was fairly sure was to be the road to victory. So I spent a lot of time building out tooling to check for vulnerabilities of, of this type. So basically he kept checking to see if a TLD's top-level servers could be registered. The main issue he ran into is that many registers, registries will tell you that a domain is totally available until you actually attempt to purchase it. I have definitely seen that before. I've had that happen too. And what I really hate is a domain that you'd like to register and is for sale. And you know they're just sitting on it and want to sell it to you for $600 but I don't want it that badly. It's it's just a vanity domain. I'm not going to pay $600 for that. If I was in business, maybe, but not. Um, so basically, he scanned everything, and it turns out that this actually helped. And now, one of the problem, one of the characteristics of the .io domain is if you click on the first, bring up the first graph here. It's only about 10% way down in the article. But their graph, like the name servers in the IO domain were called stuff like ns-a4 and bo.nec.io and ao.nec.io. And where is another one? It's very hard to find these. b0.nic.io. Yeah. And c0. Yeah. And ns-a2, stuff like that. So... These are separate domains within the .io domain. So they haven't purchased a domain and are tagging them on. Like, for example, you may own example.org, and your name servers for that domain would be NS0, NS1, NS2. And you would never, ever let anyone buy those domains. So you have them on a tightly restricted list. But what this guy is taking advantage of is the fact that they didn't tightly restrict this stuff. So... Now, where he went with this, just let me get rid of this diagram and go back to where I was reading. Um, so he wrote a tool to go through this. And he was, at the time, going through Gandhi's API, which is a great uh, registrar. If you ever want to use a registrar, use Gandhi. They give a lot of discounts to open source developers. So... His API, his tool set was revealing that Gandhi's API said, hey, you can register this, you can register this, you can register this. So he decided to go and try one. And, yep, he was able to register it for 90 bucks. 
And it was late in the day, about midnight, and he didn't bother. So he just disappeared to bed. And the following, when he received an email confirmation saying it was purchased, and it's not clear, he, he actually got the confirmation from 101 domain who actually handles IO's registrations. But it was well past midnight. He said, never mind, went to bed. And he didn't think any anything of it until the following Wednesday morning. So was that several days later or the next day? I seem to think it was the next day he was reading it. He says, the domains are active. So he looked at it. And so he went and ran a dig to see whether, you know, what are the name servers for um, this domain? And he found out it's his name servers. So he said, oh, I really do own this domain because they've, They've, they've registered it. it right? They've changed the name servers. So he, he keep in mind, he owns the name server ns-a1-io. That's the name. That's the name server of record. So if you look at the the neck, can can you pull up the article? Look at look at the digs, because this is the point that people really need to see. Now, if you do a dig of ns.io from the K root servers, yep, it's the next one down. Scroll down to the next, yeah. If you look at the bolded line there, that's his domain. So basically, the whole of I.O. has those domain servers, ns-a234 and then a0, b0, c0. That's the only seven domains for the whole of .io. So he freaked out, basically, because he says, shit. I've got bind running on that box. He actually was running bind servers on that. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So he's reporting information. This is a DNS server already. Wow. Yes. So he did the right thing. So he SSH'd into his DNS testing box. That was now hosting this domain and quickly killed the bind server that was running. Basically, if I started to receive DNS traffic, I certainly didn't want to serve up bad responses for people trying to legitimately access their .io domain names. With the bind server no longer responding to queries on port 53, all DNS queries would automatically fail over to other name servers for the TLD, and it wouldn't greatly affect the traffic, other than a slight delay in resolution time while DNS clients failed over to working name servers. So... Smart move. Now, in order to see if I was actually receiving traffic, I did a quick TCP dump. And did he actually provide the TCP? No, he didn't. Of all DNS traffic into a file just to see how many queries he was getting. He immediately saw hundreds of queries verbosely being printed to my terminal from random IP addresses across the Internet. It looks like I was definitely serving up traffic for the entire .io TLD. And worse yet, this was likely only the beginning since many DNS clients were likely still operating on cache DNS yep. records, which would shortly clear. So the problem was only going to get worse. Because remember, oh man, this was eight hours. Do we have a time on that email? Let me look. No, there is no time on mm-hmm. that email. But this is only July 5th or 4th that this happened. Right. So this is only a few days ago. So, wow. what does he do? Like any good researcher, he alerts the, the authorities Excellent. to the problem. So, 
He went over and looked at the delegation. He looked up the contacts. And right there, there's administration at nick.io. So he sent an email over there and hoped everything would get fixed. But nope, it bounced. Oh, no. Why do you have an administrative contact for a TLD where the email bounces? That is inexcusable. That's ridiculous. So this made him think this isn't going to get fixed quickly. So what does he do? He goes and registers the other domains. The other domains that his tool told him were available for registration. Why would he do that? So nobody else gets them and does something bad with them. So he says those or those domain orders were filled quite quickly, and there's the other four domains. He got he also got NSA4, NSA2, and NSA3. So for some reason, someone somewhere forgot to not let someone register those domains. So now he thinks he's in a safe place where no one else can start exploiting this. He has them all. So later that day, he contacted contacted nick.co's support phone number and requested an email and they said abuse at 101 domain.com so he emailed them and then the next day he got a whole bunch of notifications stating that his domain privacy was deactivated his support ticket his support ticket had been answered and all of his domains had been revoked by the registry <laughs> look at that so basically they undid it all and shockingly enough, he said, the abuse at alias was correct. And what he got was something from the legal department, he says. So maybe maybe it just got sent over to the legal department because that's who takes care of revoking stuff. So his impact here is interesting. Given the fact that we were able to take over four of the seven authoritative name servers for the .io TLD, we would be able to poison or redirect the DNS for all .io domains registered. That's a lot of servers. That's a lot of domains. Not only that, but since we have control over a majority of the name services, it's actually more likely that clients will randomly select our hijacked name servers over any of the legitimate name servers, even before employing tricks like long TTL responses to further tilt the odds in our favor. Even assuming an immediate response to a large-scale redirection of all .io domain names, it would be some time before all the cached records would fall out of the world's DNS resolvers. So that could have played havoc on anyone Anyone, any website, anything with .io. And there is a fair significant amount of stuff in .io. Oh, yeah. I mean, and even, even MindPlayer, we have some, some stuff running off a .io domain that would be important not to disrupt. So I, I think it's heavily used in the, in the tech industry, the field. It's, it's become very popular in the last couple of years. I am quite sure I don't have anything, but I... They are kind I know of expensive, I, so I also I have Backtrace. Them. I have Backtrace.io. Oh, that's awesome. Hmm. I do not have backtrace.io. That is not what I meant. What did you mean? You're a mystery, Dan. Always a mystery. I cannot remember. What's the website where basically they? it's a .io domain where it, you can sign up 
and uh, basically you can prove, hey, this is me, this is my Twitter account, this is this account, that, that's that account. Uh, Keybase. Keybase, thank you. Keybase, backtrace, sounds a lot alike. They do, that is true. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's uh, saying I have an account on keybase.io. Oh, uh, yeah, right, there you go. There's another one, right? It's, it's, it's very popular, yep. it's definitely used, and uh, this is crazy. And it's interesting, too, because you don't really think about that you know, we always operate one unless you run a registrar. You operate like one level lower, right? You, like you said at the at the start, we we think about subdomains all the time, but you don't think of that in terms of the in terms of the the base of the domain name really at all. So it's funny to to realize that yeah, this is this is a serious step that was just overlooked. Now, I went and I um do a who is on uh. You see in the show notes where I do this digns.org? Let's see if you can pull here. that up in a, in a terminal. And the reason I, I want you to look at this is you can see where their NS records are. And you can see they don't have the, the they would not be subject to the same thing. Because all of their NS records, all of the .org NS records are under the org.affilius-nst.org domain. There we go. Let's see here. And it's fairly easy for Affilius. Yeah, scroll up there. Scroll up just so yeah. It's fairly easy for Affilius former employer, full disclosure, to say we are never going to allow anyone to buy domains under this domain. And that's how they protect their NS records, I think. They don't have to have anything special. They just have to say, no, we're not selling domains for this. They don't have to keep track of N domains. They only have to keep track of one domain. Actually, it's two. You notice that? They have summon.org and summon.info. Right. But even then, right, like what you're saying, like that's it, it helps solve the problem there. Yeah. And there's no reason, well, like that works just fine. Yeah. Um, I wonder I wonder what dot info is. I bet you it's the same. Oh yeah. Now the re- it is, but it's it is exactly the same name servers. Because Affilius runs both dot info and dot org. Oh yeah. I, I see they've got a lot of um uh, IPv6 records as well. Huh. Anyway, good on I found them. that interesting. Yep, yep. I, I think that's a much, you know, me never having gotten involved in the infrastructure side of this. I was on the database side, sort of. Um, no. First glance, this seems a lot better. I wonder who else can we look at? Com? How does .com do it? .com does it with gtld-servers.net. That's where all their name servers are. So they're taking a similar approach. So I wouldn't be surprised if someone got bad advice. Yeah. .net. .net is the same way. Who else Who else can we think of? Oh, uh, yeah, there you go. .cx. .cx is interesting. Um they use 2.net uh, domains, 
and a nick.cx domain, but nick.cx, you just have to tightly control. So okay. they've all got host names, not not just a domain name for their name server, but they have fully qualified domain names, if if you know what I mean. Right, exactly. They're doing it much more like like how you would do for your for your own thing, where you're running it off mm-hmm. off a, off a real domain name, not something that's really just off the root. Yep. Interesting. Yep. You know, it, it occurs to me like it's it's funny. There's I'm sure there's a lot of things when you instantiate a new you know TLD and set up new infrastructure around it that things that you can just like forget. It strikes me very similar to when you know we've talked a lot about this show and on the past incarnation of this show about you know when people don't register those emails um, or don't protect them from being registered. Like when people take over admin at, at gmail yes. This is very similar to that. And so those kind of like these are essential steps that you need to know. It won't prevent your service from working, but it mm-hmm. could open you up for a horrible hole down the road. Wow. This is I wonder a fascinating about story. edu 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 everything hangs off edu-servers.net that's uh okay yeah what about uh let's let's take a look at uh, gov oh yep same thing here and i looked at bot jp and it's all off uh dns.jp.cn is all dns.cn except for a .net i don't know why they have a .net in there cernnet.net so yeah it is interesting. I do like this. Yeah, you know, looking at like .co and .uk, they're also doing the same thing. So you're right. It does seem like yeah, maybe they maybe they did get some bad advice or missed something that other other op- organizations seem to have picked up on. This is a nice a nice trick to keep things simple and ensure that you can't have this vulnerability. It's 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 yeah. great that this like this is a fascinating write up. He did an excellent job, kind of explaining what he did, showing the background, and you know it's like you feel like you're right there in the moment. I can imagine that too. Like, what did I just do? What do I now have control over? Um, so it's great that he actually, you know, it got corrected pretty fast. Hopefully that they yeah. will, they will, you know, shore up some of these things, update documentation, make sure that something like this can't happen again. A lesson to all of us. Well, the the guy does seem to be doing a good job. Some of the other, if you go back and read the other, a journey to hijacking a country's TLD. It was that that was also an interesting thing, but we don't have enough time to get into that as well. So that's true. Yep. I suppose we should move on to uh, the next the next part of the segment today, which is uh, yes, we should. What's new with you, Dan? What's new? Well, let me see. Where's my list? Um, have you checked it twice? I have. Of course you have. Uh, I don't have them here. I got some new hard uh, SSDs, and I put them in some. But the SSDs, I want to put them into a into a server, slide them into a drive bay, and you can't fit an SSD into a drive bay and have it go into the right spot. So someone suggested some icy dock converters, and they've been sitting up on the shelf for. I'm positive for months just waiting for me to get a couple of SSDs. And I finally ordered them last week, and they arrived, and I put them in. It, ha, sh- pull up the, the Twitter. Um, I put photos on Twitter. Yeah, there they are. Um, if you just click on one of the photos, click on the left one. So basically, you can see how these two screws. You can see how these two screws that secure the SSD in there. You're talking about like right but, here, kind of on the top, yes, the bottom. Yeah, those two. So everything to the left of the end of the um, 
SSD, that is all icy dock. And so basically, I've got those two there. And go to the next photo because that shows the other side. And basically, that black box there is the same dimensions as a 3.5-inch hard drive. And so all I have to do is put that into a drive tray, uh, use the screws to attach it, and then slide it straight into my server. Just slide it into a drive bay, exactly like a, a, a hard drive. They're in there now. Nice. They're not doing anything. They're just sitting there being powered up for a few days before... I do anything else with them. I got to say so, those look those look pretty nice. I've seen some some similar items, but that were not mm-hmm. as high quality, um, especially for like uh, for for desktops and such. And so that this looks this looks really nice. Looks really solid, um, and like like it's not going to get damaged at all. I think they're about twelve or thirteen dollars. Okay, yeah, that's reasonable. I think they got off off um, Amazon, I think, or mm-hmm. maybe Newegg. I'm not sure. I think it was Amazon. And then the next thing I did is I got a stack when I was in oh can you hear me you can't hear me now but I got a when I was in Ottawa I went by Lee Valley Tools and Lee Valley Tools has a lot of amazing stuff and this is just this little divider tray such such things and it has all these different little dividers that just sort of slide into different spots you can make all kinds of different size uh, compartments and then they stack and then you can pick up the box and see what's in them and I took one of my Ikea boxes that are sitting up on the shelf and threw the stuff in here and have a look at the photos on Twitter for me please you can see these four boxes that I filled up, and it's just so easy to put stuff in there. Uh, click on the next next photo. Oh, so look these at that. are just, that's just drive ca- that's just for drive cage stuff. So this is a whole bunch of M5 stuff and maybe some M6 in the middle on the lower right. See, I don't use the silver ones that comes with the gear. I like the black the. The, the black gear. Yeah. Try, next photo, please. So these are drive screws. So in the bottom tray are just the ones I use for the drive cage. On uh, the right-hand lo- long tray is stuff for my R610. And then these other things are just various grommets and uh, uh, screws that I use on some of my older... Um, an- not anchor... Uh, Oh, I can't remember the the manufacturer, but they do really good gear. It's a Japanese company. Anyway, next slide, next slide, next photo. No, I like it. Keep saying slide. And these are just um, uh, drive screws that you would use, say, in a regular uh, tower case. These are mostly for um, um, hard drives, especially the bottom right. And then, then you can see a whole bunch of contoured ones. Next slide, please. Oh, it says there are no more. What? There should be four. Oh, here's that one. I think it was at the first start. Huh. There should be four. Let's see here. One. Oh, yeah. There one, we go. There's two, four. Three. Okay, good. And this one is just more, more the same. 
That makes sense. This is awesome. These look like boxes that I would like when you're in a pinch or you're building a new system or just just doing some maintenance. You're like, oh, do I have that? I don't know where that went. But these, like, you can just come right back to. You know what's in there. You pop it open. You've got the part that you need. It's screwed in. Done. They stack nicely. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. And they only cost um, five for ten bucks. Okay. Where'd you say you got those? Lee Valley Tools. Good tip. You can order them online, and they're an Ottawa company. I think they started off making dental tools or something, but then they started making all these other things, and it's a really nice little shop to go into. I really like it. It's uh, Green Bank Road at the Queensway in Ottawa. Anyone in Ottawa has heard of them, I'm sure. So on to the next thing. These are LTO4 labels. They come in a oh nice... Oh my god, who are you? This is amazing. Only you they come in a nice. They come in a nice resealable and you can put them through your printer. I think you can see the little individual sheets there. Maybe not. I can't see them. But yeah. These are peel and stick. I will be using this them in combination with a website I found online that allows you to print such labels, print LTO4 labels. And the vendor that sold me these, I, uh, I think this, it's a hundred sheets for $24 delivered. I can create 3,200 labels with this, and I'm sure I will never in my life have 3,200 LTO4 labels, or LTO labels, for that matter. So when I bought this, the vendor also sent me a free link. Here, you can use this label master type thing. But there's also a, a website out there, and if anyone asks for it, I'll look it up. But basically, you can print 100 labels a year for 9 bucks or something like that. And basically, you go in and you say you want this range and these colors. It creates a PDF for you, and then you can create use that PDF to print there. And it's pretty damn cool. That's awesome. It looks like you've really you know you're really getting organized here, and you've got all the right all the right stuff so that you know you can label things, you can have it all backed up nicely, and when you need it, it'll be right there. It's the kind of stuff that like not everyone wants to do or likes, but I think it really pays off in the long run. I've been wanting to do this for ages. <laughs> Yeah, right. And in two years, when you've forgotten about the labor of doing it and everything, you're going to be like, pass Dan. Where are they? Where are they? Oh, there they are. Uh, They've just been sitting in a box in all these different baggies. That's terrible. Yeah, totally. Um, Now, the other thing I did, and this doesn't have a, a photograph to go with it, but in my hands, I have two three terabyte drives. Until a week ago, these formed uh, one-third of the storage in one of my main development servers sitting behind me. What are they doing in my hands, and why aren't they in the servers? Because these are three-terabyte drives, and I replaced them with five-terabyte drives. And one of them is just sitting there silvering now. And... In this other box, I have a whole bunch more five terabyte drives to go in there, and it should greatly increase the storage. Not greatly, but 
add two-thirds more storage. But it'll also make it a lot faster. And why do I think it'll make it a lot faster? Because I have another box that has 37 terabytes of data in one uh, 10-drive array and only 17 terabytes in drive in another 10-drive array. And the difference between the two arrays is that one is 5-terabyte drives and the other is 3-terabyte drives. And the 5-terabyte drives, despite having more than twice the amount of data, does a scrub which reads every single bit of data in less than half the time of the other one. So basically, it's so much faster. And just let me see. Did, did I actually post that data? I think I did. See pulse data? Uh, no, I don't know where it is. I may have even... Uh, I bet you I put it on Twitter. I bet because you I was did. So imp- I was so impressed with the difference in time. Uh, scrolling down, scrolling down. Where is it? Uh, scrub. There it is. Two Z pools. So basically, the 17 terabytes scrubbed in 22 and a half hours. And the 37 terabytes. So... How much more data? It's more than twice the data scrubbed in nearly half the time. So I'm going to change everything from the three terabyte drives, which have been extremely reliable. Right. So not a bad experience, but hey, now that you've got better. And so how long have I had those hard drives? 8,900 hours, I think, is the power-up time. So that's about 370 days. Yeah. So I'll have some drives for sale sometime soon. (laughs) Awesome. The three-terabyte drive ones. And so related to this, very oddly, Mm -hmm. is I uploaded two new scripts that I wrote. Oh, did you? In conjunction with my Let's Encrypt stuff. And I made them public. Not because I think people will use them, but because it's going to force me to improve them. Um, one of them is what I use for collecting cert- certificate information from ACME. ACME is one of my jails. Um, I, I've got the Let's Encrypt ACME.sh script running very well, and it will give me new certs. But I'm doing this centralized, so all of my domains are going to be run through this one server. And then what I want to do is distribute all my certificates out via a publicly accessible website. So this uh, collect certs domain uh, script uh, grabs the domains from uh, the acme.sh user and then puts them into an rsync directory, which the website then rsyncs from once a day. Okay. And then the websites will once a day go out and say, hey, listen, do you have a new server for, certificate for me? Oh, no. Okay, never mind. But if it does, it'll download it to the server. So all the servers will do this in a pull mechanism. It'll download uh, the certificate. Uh, it'll install it to the right location and then restart all the services that it needs. Uh, that's what the check for new certs uh, script does. At the moment, it'll handle Postfix, uh, Apache uh, version 24, um, 
Dovecott and something else. I can't remember. It's in the script. But yeah, that that's my next project. Um, now now that I've got the the DNS working, DNS01 auth works. Now I want to start spreading this all out. And I want to try and run this check for new certs script as a non-root user, which means that it needs certain sudo privileges. And I'm going to have to create a port for all that because I certainly don't want to do this all by hand. And that's going to be my next little project. I hope, hope to have that done by the end of the week. This is pretty neat. Thank you for sharing. It's it's nice. I like that. I like that architecture too, and it provides you this. Um, you know, it's it's you've got a nice like distributed system going, but with some pretty, especially having looked just now at your scripts, like it's it, there's some pretty simple components. It's not it's not overly complicated at all, but it seems like reliable, and you've got some very good separation of concerns, right? So you've got you know you've got mm-hmm. got everything handling the certs over here, and then it's it's over here, and then all the way over here you've got web servers that can actually go get the sorts that they need, get updated mm-hmm. regularly, and it all just happens without you having to intervene, which is awesome. And it'll work for anything that has access to a website. The website doesn't necessarily have to be public. Okay. You could have a private website, mm-hmm. but I'm doing it through a public website. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. How many domains does this uh, do you do it for right now? Oh, just a second. Yeah. I can tell you by logging in. If I can log in, why can't I do anything? Here, <laughs> uh, here we go. Uh, SSH DNS Hidden Master. Hey, that's a very clear name. I like that. <laughs> that, that really is the name of the, of the jail. I mean, it's good Master. to have names that make sense, right? CD slash. See, usually I'll collect such a name. Uh, go into zones, go into working and zones, ls star dot db, wc minus l, 24. Oh, yeah. Hey, that's not a bad number. Awesome. So 24 there now. Which, I, I, and that just serves to further motivate this whole thing, right? Like, that's a lot of that's a lot of domains to manage. You don't want to be handling all of those certs by hand, especially yeah. when you're using Let's Encrypt. Well, I think all the domains are... I even hate domain renewal. Mm-hmm. So I, I think Langel.org got renewed for 10 years the last time that, that I renewed it. Yeah, just, I don't so want to think about this. I don't want to renew it. So now that's good till 2025 at the moment. Excellent. Always, always better to be on the safe side, especially for the ones that you care about. Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, that's great. Anything else you want to add to uh, the What's Up with Dance segment? Uh, if anyone wants to use these scripts, just let me know. They're, they're on GitHub. If they work or if they don't work, let me know. You Raise can, an issue. You can find them in the show notes. And uh, hey, that's it for the main segment today. But stay tuned. We'll be right back with the feedback. And that brings us to this week's feedback segment, the time in the show where we take time out of this busy show to, uh, hey, listen to some feedback from you guys, tips, suggestions, criticisms, and just some interesting stories. First up this week, we've got a letter from our friend, I'll just say it, let's see, right here, D-U-U-X-3-X, asking about risk. Risk is good? Hey, guys. Just kind of curious about how you feel regarding risk in production, like using Power, MIPS, and the upcoming Risk Five in places like in a data center through consumer devices like routers and possibly even in laptops or desktop systems. 
Is there any merit to using a RISC ISA over the AMD64 CISC ISA used everywhere? Is it really going to change the world? With IBM's Power 8 having SMT8 allowing their 12 core parts to be capable of processing 96 threads at once, is there a reason we'd continue to use Intel Xeon processors with their hyper-threading or two-way SMT? Looking at the prices, there's not a major difference between getting a Xeon CPU versus a Power 8 rack, so it seems a bit strange to me that we continue to buy Cisco AMD64 servers, when the IBM servers seem to be capable of much more power. MIPS seems to be pretty capable, too. I know that it's running in a lot of network systems, where you have FreeBSD running as the base system on top of which the OEM tools are running, but I haven't seen it offered in any sort of consumer computing platform since the Lung Soon Yilong laptops that uh, Richard Stallman famously uses. Uh as it has until recently been the only completely free laptop system. These days, however, don't seem to have made it past 2012, from what I can see. RISC-V, of course, is the up-and-coming ISA, with an attractive BSD license on it, which recently had some microcontroller boards get released by sci 5 Hopefully the architecture gets rolling so we can get even more free and open systems out in the world. ARM has been excluded from this list because of the general pain that it's been to get things working on ARM. Unlike MIPS or Power, it doesn't seem to really have a common platform that you can target, instead requiring you to target ARM v5 or 6 or 7 or 8 or all of them with or without hardware floating point support. Not to mention that it's already everywhere. Hey, that's a great article. Thank you, uh, Deux3x, for writing us about that. Dan, let's turn it to you. What do you think about this? What do you think about risk? There's some FreeBSD work uh, done on RISC. Uh, there's a whole page devoted to nothing but RISC-V. It's an, um, I, I really like RISC uh, architecture in that I like the concept of do a lot of small instructions that do things very well and very quickly. And then you can do the more complex things by using a lot of little instructions and you're you're less likely to mess things up if you just concentrate on small, non-complex instructions. It's much easier to get that right than do very complex instruction sets. So, he says, I know there's a lot of work on AMD, uh, sorry, on ARM for FreeBSD, but I don't see why he's sort of discounting that. I don't know why he's saying that it's very difficult to get running. Um, because I know that um, well, I think I've seen a l- I think more just the the ARM style of you know each like uh, system on a chip is kind of very specialized. There, there's been a lot of you don't have the same kind of stuff like that you have on x86 like the BIOS or able to you know mm-hmm. interactively query for what components exist where you just kind of mm-hmm. end up having this one uh, you know one firmware and boot setup locked into the thing. So that may okay. be some of the concerns. I'm not sure though. Mm-hmm. That means I don't know as much about ARM as I should know. Um, but there's a lot of per- peripherals that don't work, like SATA support mm-hmm. on FreeBSD isn't working. So now this page may be out of date. That's possible. But yeah, I don't have any ARM systems. I don't have any RISC systems. Um, but I remember hearing about risk. I think when I was in university, could that be pre nineteen eighty five? Could I have heard about risk? Yeah, I really. Maybe we should Google that bit and find out when risk came about. That's a good question. Well, I mean, really, you know, really, it's a, as it's a contrast between like you know this this complicated instruction set versus you know a, a really minified, a reduced instruction set computer. Yeah, sixties and seventies. 
yeah. most of the concepts date from the 1980s. So, yeah, okay. It might have been around that. Yep. Late 80s. Number of designs flourished in the late 80s and especially the early 90s. So, yeah, okay, I do do remember it from back then. But I wish there was more stuff that used Risk. I mean, Spark mm-hmm. was all Risk, wasn't it? Yeah, or at least a lot of it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, we, yeah. Don't, we don't really have that kind of diversity today. We might be getting back to it. I, think, I mean, ARM has increased it, certainly. Um, I think he's definitely right to be interested in Risk Five, um, as as Wikipedia notes. In contrast to most ISAs, the Risk Five ISA can be freely used for any purpose, permitting anyone to design, manufacture, mm-hmm. and sell Risk Five mm-hmm. chips yep. and software. So I think that's a huge boon. Yep. Obviously, like I think one of the huge factors you see here is right. It's just like what's popular, what's common, what do people already know, work with, and trust. So I don't see your yep. average vendor going away from i mean even just intel anytime soon necessarily um you know it will take someone um to make a big leap yes but i do think i mean especially i'm not an expert in power eight i've never actually used it myself i've read a little bit about it but there probably are some opportunities to you know stand out a little bit and if you do have that kind of expertise or you're willing to try new systems or you have you know open source or in-house things that you can recompile to the architecture of your choice which not everyone does um, you know, it may be that you can get better performance per dollar if you're willing to have a learning curve with, with some of these alternative architectures. You know, you see that sometimes I, I can think of like, you know, people who use Erlang necessarily, or even FreeBSD in some circles can be regarded like that as a, is a little bit of a special sauce that's outside the normal. That's what this makes me think of, but it's not yet something where, you know, Joe Schmo server buyer is going to be interested in doing it. I want to point something out. Following a number following a number of commits to the FreeBSD subversion repository in January 2016, FreeBSD is the first operating system to have bootable in-tree support for RISC-V. Hmm. Well, I didn't know that. So that's over about a year and a half ago that you can boot RISC-V system. You can install FreeBSD on a RISC-V system and have it bootable. In in the tree, it, 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 it's no pull-ins, no special stuff. It's just there. Interesting. Hmm. All right. Well, I think this was a this was a great feedback item. I appreciate oh, yeah. the discussion, um, and I think it's a perfect opportunity for you, the viewers, to write into us. Hey, maybe you know a lot more about different uh, architectures than we do. Maybe you have some experience in the field, or maybe you're running some Power 8 and you just want to go talk about how awesome it is. Any of those are great. Whatever you think, please write in. Let us know. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact. There you'll find the contact form that emails us. We'll put it in the show. And uh, hey, that's that's as simple as it is. Now we go to our next letter, which is from our friend Morgan, writing about ZFS checksum errors on DigitalOcean block storage. Uh Uh-oh. That doesn't sound great. Mm. Although, hey, isn't that what we have ZFS for? Um, So... Dan and Wes, twice now, I've had a FreeBSD 11 droplet on DigitalOcean with an attached block storage managed by ZFS turn up checksum errors when doing a ZPool scrub. The first time, I cleared it with ZPool clear, assuming it was just some random glitch. After a few months, though, it happened again. I wrote to DigitalOcean about this, but they're unable to help. Wondering if any other TechSnap subscribers who have a FreeBSD plus DigitalOcean plus, plus ZFS machine have experienced the same? And if so, what's the source of this trouble? Thank you for the informative show. I never miss a week. Morgan, thank you for being an awesome viewer, Morgan. Much appreciated and for your great feedback item. Any thoughts over there, FreeBSD Dan? 
I don't know what OS DigitalOcean has under the books. I'm sure they have to have something. Yes, I believe You're not it's running on your own hardware. Right. Sorry, what did you say? Uh, I believe it's some form of Linux. In that, at least in the past, they've always used a KVM virtualization. But I don't actually know the details. Could I know that if you're running in a VM and your host OS is ZFS is is based on ZFS, you don't want to scrub both virtually and and physically. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because you'll get competing scrubs there. Because someone will go in and they'll flip a bit because it was wrong, but then someone else will say, "Hey, this bit flipped, and I don't know why it flipped. It should be this. It should should be that." I see. And so. You think you've fixed it when you haven't fixed it, and it, it's not a good sign. But it could just be that the bits needed to be flipped. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, and there definitely could be some sort of some sort of even if it's not uh, ZFS, it might be you know some sort of RAID going on underneath. I'm not quite sure how their you know how their storage mechanisms work, especially with the attachable block storage. Yeah, I I don't know what what it is. I wonder also if anyone's all. if you know if anyone's seen this. I don't. I don't have any FreeBSD systems on there right now, but I do have some Linux ones, so I'll attach some CFS on there too, um, and see if I see s- some of the same things. Uh, hopefully, hopefully at least you're able to to get past or it hasn't caused you any kind of you know terrible corruption. But that is a little bit a little bit troubling. It is also awesome to see you know CFS giving you some insight. Without this, you know, if you're just running any other file system, you'll be like, oh well, I guess I have silent silent failures going on that I'll never find out about until you try to reach yes. your favorite file. And- and that's bad. You don't want silent fail- failures. No. That's that's worse than no failure. Well, yeah, exactly. It, it's bad. You don't want that. So thank you very much, Morgan. I, unfortunately, I don't have any great advice, but uh, I'll play around with it a little bit. Maybe the audience can too, and uh, maybe we'll get some more feedback with uh, similar stories or some tips for uh, for tuning or settings. Up next, we've got a letter from our friend Jonathan. He's writing about alternate email hosting services. If you're looking for an alternate email hosting service, he writes to you, the audience, I'd suggest looking at runbox.com. Their main claim to fame is that they're in Norway and they are focused on security. So, in theory, folks like the U.S. government can't just subpoena them for your emails. The whole Edward Snowden bit seems to have really helped their business. But the main reason I chose to use them is that they support up to 100 email aliases per account out of the box and allow you to buy more if you need them whereas most other email hosting services seem to be a little bit more limited with the number of email aliases they support. It probably won't matter to a lot of folks. Not everyone needs over 100 email aliases, but since I usually use a separate email alias per site that I deal with, which makes filtering my emails, tracking where my addresses get leaked quite easy, it matters a lot to me. So Runbox has been a great solution for me, and I'd recommend anyone looking for an email hosting service check them out in case it fits what they're looking for as well. Hey, Jonathan, thank you very much. That's great. I have no experience with them personally. I don't know if you do, Dan, but uh, it sounds like a good service. Sounds like they've been around for a while. And even if it's not always true, even mentioning security, that's always a plus. Uh, you know, it shows that they, they at least pretend to take it seriously. Or at least they have good mark- marketers. Or they have good marketers. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I wonder if they host their own or if... if- if they're a reseller or if they own all their own servers or what. Yeah, right. That, that's a that's, good question. That's what I want to know. I'm pretty sure that not not to run down Runbox because I have no idea what, what they're doing, but I do know that Fast Mail hosts their own servers. 
they have them in, in data servers, but that in data centers, but they have their own servers. They don't use third-party servers. Hmm. Yeah, it's always good to to know of other th other thing. I wonder where they host them. That's the other thing. It's a Norwegian company, but where are they hosted? Where are they hosted? What does that look Oslo? like? Yeah. Yep. So there's ask all those, these questions. They might be good. They might be doing the right things or not. But yeah, these are all things to take, especially if if the security part is what you're really interested in, or you're concerned about you know U.S. government or being targeted by others. But uh, it's always good to have more suggestions. Thank you very much, Jonathan. They're hosted at Digiplex. Okay. Look at you already doing research. Which allegedly, I guess, for the Norwegian government. Okay, so I guess it's all in Norway. Yeah, okay. Good. It's better than nothing. Exactly. We're already off to a good start. Yes. To continue that role, let's look at the next letter from uh, Gonzalez. Writing about Google, MX, email, $1? Hi. I'm sorry to intrude like this. But I've heard Dan say something that Google hosts Dan's MX records or deliver email or something for just $1 a month for a lot of his domains. Can you please explain in a little more detail just what is your setup? Who is doing what, how many, and for how much? Thank you. Ah, awesome. Don't worry about the intrusion. I think, in fact, we invited you. So thank you for the feedback. That's awesome. Let's turn it over to Dan right now. Tell us more. Gee, sweet. That's what it is. G Suite does that. Pricing. G Suite pricing. Basic. Oh, wow. Okay. Why am I getting it for $1 a month when they say 5 bucks a month here? I have no idea. Teams. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm on an old program. I, I know I came in from Postini. I was using Postini's services then. So this appears to be much more expensive five times more expensive so yeah. i think that's maybe there's something else maybe it was only um google apps or no google apps then became g suite didn't it i'm sure you can't do anything so. else yeah i know they've gone yeah. through several different phases and yeah phase well, you go through out. google apps and it takes you to g suite so that makes sense. Sorry, it seems like I'm not going to change much. Uh, but to um, explain, if you do a who is on any of my domains or, or a host, uh, run a host command on any of my domains, you'll see that uh, all my mail is handled by Google. So they do all my incoming, all my mail ingress they do the spam filtering for me, and then they forward it on to my servers. I'm sure they have copies. I know they have copies of it because I can go and look at my delivered mail on their servers. So, um, yeah, that, that's what I use them for because I think they're pretty good at spam. Right, yeah. They uh, Hey, they've invested a lot of time and money and energy into just that. So if you can take mm -hmm. advantage of it, that's pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Okay, awesome. Um yeah, I know there's a you know there's a bunch of bunch of companies out there. I'll have to look around. I'm considering moving mine. I use Zoho right now randomly because I saw like a deal. So I think I pay like three dollars a month for my MX record hosting and and uh, some similar services. Um, but I don't know. There's there's probably some some lists or you know people put together some reviews of what are the you know what email options are there for if you want to host your own or or any part of that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I might have to take a look. Something we can highlight in the next episodes or hey. Audience, if you have any suggestions, you let us know. 
I'm a fan of Postfix, Dovecot, and Roundcube. Yeah, Roundcube looks really interesting. I've played with it like on their demo sites a little bit, and I've installed it once mm-hmm. or twice, but I've never run it all the time. But it, it's pretty polished, and it's a nice experience. I like it. Okay, awesome. Uh, up to our final feedback for today's program. Jake writes about Vim customization. Hey, guys. Thanks for continuing to do TechSnap. You're very welcome. I just started reading a book about Vim. One of the first things the author asks the readers to do is install his 323-line VimRC file. My current one has about three lines. From a system administration point of view, what do you guys think of heavy Vim customization? Keep it up, guys. It gets better every week. Hey, thanks a lot, Jake. All right, I'll let you go first. What do you think, Dan? Heavy Vim customization. That While we go do? through this, while we go through this, have a look back. We we skipped over one feedback one. Did we? So so yeah, oh, yeah. the check your that. backups one. So yes. we'll get back to that one. Just started reading a book about Vim. Three hundred and twenty-three lines. It's pretty big. That's a lot. What yeah. are you doing with it? <laughs> I mean, it's just your editor. So who cares what you're doing with it? I mean, if you have a lot of stuff in there, you have a lot of stuff in there. Um, I think for my editor, Joe, there's, there's a lot of default stuff that I use, but you know, it's the same as the Bash profile. If you've got stuff in it, it doesn't matter. I, uh, I don't, anyone that gives a lot of uh, grief to someone for having a lot of Vim customization, so what? It's just your editor. I guess right? what, I, Vim, what yeah. I would say is, is just like there's certainly nothing wrong with it, but it would be nice to understand at least some of that. Um, so starting off with a really big VimRC, which, which, which might be fine. And if the author is going through in this book, right, he obviously has, has, has thought about this plan for it. So mm-hmm. you learn about some of those features. Um, things that, that I strike me about is I think a lot of people do it and then run into problems later where they have features or parts of them that they expect or yeah. don't understand and then don't have on other systems, which can be a pain. Um, and just, well, you know, you don't identify what your minimal set of things are. If you just want to do it to learn more about Vim, create another user. Yeah. Or create create a jail somewhere or a VM and do it just in there. If you're concerned about it, just do it in there. Yeah. I don't have anything wrong with the Vim customization. You can actually do a lot. So if this book helps you learn some of that, I think that's awesome. I mean, you mm-hmm. can go pretty far away into turning Vim into almost an IDE with, you know, Auto-corrections and all kinds of coloring highlights, indentation plugins, Git plugin, like the, you know the whole the whole works. There's a lot you can do. Powerline, all that stuff, which is all great. It's a super useful program. Um, if you're just learning Vim though, and, or if you're doing it from a sysadmin perspective, it yeah. can be tough too. Especially like if you're going to be using Vim on a bunch of remote systems that don't have your your profile preferences. Then it might right. pay to know you know first learn the base set and then go on to some more of the advanced features or optional plugins that are available to you. Um, but if you've got a book, I mean, it doesn't hurt to like you know do both. Go through some basics Vim in a in a non modified one or a minimal set, and then also work through the book. Have you seen what you can do with Emacs? <laughs> yes, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, we won't go into that. You we, want. we won't go into that. Yeah. Well, so next feedback. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is the real final one uh, because apparently I skipped over this, so I am uh, so sorry, dear Jonathan. Now we will read it. Check your backups. You might just learn PG dump 
a little bit better. Hey, Dan and Wes. Many moons ago, you guys covered the GitLab data loss, and it made me nervous. I think it made us and all And rightly nervous. so. Yeah, right? Yes. I was on a team at work and got promoted to doing operations. So I told the team I was going to check out backup since we were about to go live with the system of record for some survey data. Test restore number one doesn't work. <laughs> Test restore number two takes down the dev environment. Doom, now doom, doom. we have an issue. Yes. I start digging into the backup process and found what most people would call a nightmare. Poorly written bash scripts with no documentation to do the backups and then poorly documented Jenkins jobs that did some weird Docker command, e.g. let's start up a new container, disconnect the data volume, then reconnect. Did I mention that on the server that was running Docker, it had limited disk space for slash home, which is where the backups were being dumped with a mounted disk space with plenty of disk space that was restricted to root only for quote-unquote security reasons? It occurred to me all we needed was a data backup, not this, not this weird Frankenstein. So fast forward a few months later, I created a simple Jenkins file that would execute pgdump. Yes, Dan, your deep dive into Proskas helped a lot. Awesome. On the Docker container holding the database and then store the backup in the Jenkins workspace. Not only was I able to do our restores without issue, I was able to set up the groundwork for manually to manually sync the data to our dev environments from production and potentially set up a one-click restore solution from Jenkins. The thing I'm proud of is that it provided a non-developer-friendly solution to do the backups, e.g. just click a button or set the schedule from the Jenkins job, and it is maintainable by future developers, e.g. it is written in groovy language for the Jenkins file, and the pgdump commands are very straightforward. So thank you for covering that story and making me look like a hero. Also, thanks for the shows. They've been helping me on my runs that I've been posting about on Twitter. Awesome. That's great to hear, Jonathan. You're very welcome to the shows. Keep up those awesome runs. I think that's wonderful. And this is a super useful story. It should be good advice for anyone to go check your restores. Yes. Um, yes. And I think the simplifications you've done are great. I mean, Jenkins is a powerful tool, obviously, as is Postgres. But you're right. Like, if you can simplify it, what what really do we can care here about? What are we trying to back up? And then focus on the data itself, how you back it up, and doing so automatically, securely, and verifiably restorable. That's great. And copying stuff, um, using production to populate dev is a good way to test your backups. So right. I'm glad that they're doing that. Yeah. Hey, and if and once you've got that, you know, starting down that automation pipeline, hey, that's that can only be good too. So you can have recent data in production in uh, you know an easier way, or an e- recent production data in dev. What am I saying? Awesome. Thank you, Jonathan. That's wonderful feedback. Everyone else, go check your backups right now. I mean, well, no, not right now. Finish watching TechSnap. Then after that, go check your backups. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up the feedback? Nope. No. Cool. Thank you. Awesome. This has been the feedback segment. Stay tuned. We'll have the roundup. And that brings us to our final sponsor this evening. That's right. It's our friends over at Ting. Head on over to techsnap.ting.com to discover a smarter way to do mobile. When you find out that the average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month, yeah, you're going to have about the same uh, reaction I did, which was, woo, this is amazing. I'm going to switch to Ting right now. And guess what? It's super easy. You can bring your own device and make it really easy to go check if your device is supported. And they have all the things that you want in a cell phone plan. They've got tethering, three-way calling, voicemail, no early termination fees, no overages, and the best part, you just pay for what you use. Head on over to their rates page. You'll see what I mean. What other carrier has as simple 
of a page. This is everything you need to know about Ting pricing right here in just a tiny little grid, and it's interactive. So you start with the number of lines you need. Just one? You got a couple family members? Doesn't matter. They're all just $6 a month. Super simple. Doesn't matter what you do with them. They start at just $6 a month, whether that be a backup phone in your car, your main phone, a phone that you want to give to your nanny so that you know you can always reach her, or just the, you know, an extra phone for the car, or a wireless MiFi that you keep with you all the time so that you know you've got super good tethering. You can do some work whenever, wherever you're at. You don't have to pay $70 a month when you don't think you'll use it. It's just $6 a month. Then, how many minutes did you use? Yeah, 500. All right. You talked a lot that month. That's all right. How many text messages? Probably none because who uses text messages? And then your data. Simple prices. Doesn't matter. It starts right here. If you need a whole bunch more, they support that. There's no overages. There's no having to estimate how much data you think you need. You just use it. Use your phone how you want to use it. Ting bills you for it. It's simple. It's easy. It's transparent. And if you don't use very much data, like look at this. You know, you're using some phone calls. You're using about a gig of data, probably less if you're around Wi-Fi like me. $31 a month. It's hard to even find another cell phone plan that you can get for that, even just for one person. That's what makes Ting so different. And Ting's been around for a while. They know what they're doing. They don't have to focus on building new new poles or building out the network because they, you know, they're a reseller. They've got both GSM and CDMA. Whichever one is better in your area, Ting makes it super simple to do that. If you don't have a phone, you can head on over to their shop. They've got a lot of great options, including some of the newest devices, Samsung Samsung Galaxy 8. They've got the latest iPhone, of course. And they can focus on customer service. That's really what they do best. They've got one of the best web interfaces in the entire business for any product. You can do everything you need to. Something you would have to call another company for? No, not a Ting. Just pop on. They have a great app. They've got a website. And if you want to talk to someone, you can. They've got real humans available to talk to. They're super friendly. They'll stay on the line with you. They'll make sure that your issues get covered. They really, they, Ting understands what's happening. They're concerned about you. They don't, you know, as we covered, check out this week's Linux Unplugged. You'll see Ting cares about privacy. They, they care about security. They care about these things. They, they're not in the business of messing with, with the image installed on your phone. They're not in the business of transcoding your data behind your back or blocking sites or adding super cookies or any of these things. That's not what they care about. What they care about is providing awesome phone service, doing mobile right, and having mobile that makes sense. So head on over to techsnap.ting.com. Let you let them know you appreciate Ting sponsoring the TechSnap program and go save a bunch of money on your mobile plan. Thank you, Ting. Thank you very much to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And that brings us to the final segment of today's show, which is the roundup. The time of the show where we cover some stories that we didn't make it into the top segment of the show. There's just so, you know, if we if we did that, we'd be here for like six hours. And I think Dan might actually kill me or we'd have to just be drinking here. On the, it, it would be a mess, whatever happened. Dan would run out of figs. It's just not right. So we'll cover them quickly. They're homework for you. They're homework for us. And they're a lot of fun. So first up, this seems like a fun idea. Let's go to TCP ISP stack. This part is part five, TCP retransmission. Tell us more, Mr. Dan. Have you seen Drunk Cooking? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Should we do a drunk text? Drunk text snap. Maybe we'll save it for uh, for the, when we oh. do a double one day or something. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. I like that. So. 
I've never coded TCP stack. Have you? I have not. It's you know, pretty, it's one of those things that it's, it's, it's a pretty lot specialized. Yeah, we already have them. There's been a lot of care and optimization yeah. placed in them. But you know, it's one of those things that like you rely on it every day. And sure, most of us have at least a cursory understanding of of how you know most of the features work, or at least mm-hmm. the the obvious bits. It's, it's fascinating to think about more about like how does this all actually work. It's easy to break. It's easy to break. I'll just change this. No, 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 no. So I got uh, I got feedback from three people who have either coded TCP or have worked with it, and they all said that this makes sense. So if you want to learn more about TCP and how it works, start reading this. More importantly, go back, go to the bottom here where it says uh, "Getting Started." Click on "Getting Started." And then click on level IP and you go to the top level where all of this is covered. And the whole idea of the project is to learn TCP IP, learn Linux systems, networker programming, and learn Linux socket API. And there are five parts to this, uh, the, fifth wit- the fifth of which is the uh, feedback article in question. So um, it sounds fun. It looks like it's been going for... At least, oh, no, over a year. Oh, cool. Over a year. Yeah, look at that. This, this seems great, especially like whether whether you're you know an ops person wanting to learn more about the the dev side of things and how it's all tied together, or you know you're a developer who hasn't spent much time at the network layer or any of that. Like there is a mm-hmm. lot of information here that you can be mm-hmm. that can be useful and you know take your take your game to the next level in this area. Awesome. All yep. right. I will definitely have to play with a little bit of that later. Okay, so up next, OpenBSD has got a cool new feature that, uh, hey, might just make you more secure every time you reboot. So we've heard about AL, ASLR. I always want to say AL, ASLR. So basically, it randomizes the addresses that th- certain things use. But there's something you can't do with the kernel. The kernel always loads first, and it loads into this section because it's hard-coded. But what they've done now is they said, well, once we boot, let's compile the next kernel with a different address in it so it loads in a different place. And you just do that while you're running in the background. And then when it's ready, when you're going to reboot, it says, okay, reboot with this kernel. And so every time you reboot, you have a randomized kernel. And so that makes it really difficult for, well, much more awkward for anyone trying to exploit known locations or stuff like that because it's just not going to be where you think it's going to be yeah yeah. and this was done by theo and it sounds like a lot of fun and i didn't hear about it from this article first i heard about it from i heard about it when listening to bsc now episode 199 and i don't remember when i listened to it but i'm positive i was driving in the car that makes sense yeah, they've got and, some good uh, some good comparisons too to some other uh, some other operating systems. It's not implemented in Linux, um, but it looks like a great idea. They do something a little bit different, uh, and then as for Windows, Carl is not supported. It's neat though. This is a this is a a, a clever idea, and it makes sense that uh, it would be pioneered in OpenBSD. It is pretty cool. Awesome. So go check that out, and you know if you're interested, go check out our sister podcast BSD Now awesome show tons of great bsd information obviously and uh sometimes they just get into the technical weeds which is also fun Uh okay up next 
privileged ports cause climate change. What what does this mean? Now, heads up, if you read this article from start to finish, there are some bits in here that get a bit uh, risque, shall I say. So, full warning, you're, you're going to get some sexual references in this. But if you scroll all the way to the bottom very quickly so people can't read those bits, there's a section... Uh, it's up above, just above multi-tenant networking. And I'll read it out to you. The conclusion is basically based on this. I'm going to hazard a guess that the same 16 to 24 core Xeon with 256 gigabyte of RAM that probably hosts less than 100, 776 megabyte VMs could probably host thousands of user workloads if those workloads ran directly on the same kernel without the cost of a hypervisor or the bloat of containers. I have two words. FreeBSD jails. They all run on the same kernel. Look at you making a BSD reference. But yeah, no, it's true, right? Like, um, This is some of the reason that uh, containers and, and other technology like, like jails or zones have been so maybe so interesting all of a sudden is to, you know we suddenly have we're back in the mainframe world just uh, version two with a cloud cloud version and we have so many workloads that vms are now becoming uh kind of a, a overhead there's some mm-hmm. some work too like in the linux side there's things like intel's clear containers which try to boot like um, a very minimal hypervisor type uh situation where the or the, where the vm you know you're, it's a very minimal vm it doesn't have all the full mm-hmm. hardware virtualization. Yep. I've seen some similar work in kind of like the unikernel space. So you don't need like QEMU, which emulates this full thing with floppy drivers and all that. Um, but you're right. Like we density is now a concern. And especially then if we're concerned about being efficient, not, not only just for budgetary reasons, but for the environment. I'm, I'm not sure he, he the, the first paragraph tries to set his credentials, but he says he's 39 um, I would try and co- he, he then talks about privileged ports things is it things under 128 or 1024 uh, I forget the exact range but there are cert- certain ports that you cannot connect to unless you're root and his theory is that well if you allowed people to connect as non-root then you wouldn't have this virtualization problem um but I'm sure that there are very good reasons why that was decided. And he, he he goes into a little bit of detail about, I'm not really sure why they chose this, but if they'd considered this or if they considered that, well, those people are still around. Just ask them. The people that made those decisions are still alive and, and, and working. Ask them why they chose that. Anyway. Before we move on, I just want to say one thing about the, that open BSD article that I, I forgot to mention is down at the bottom, they just have a great comparison between um, between Carl and Kessler, you know, meaning uh, kernel address randomization versus kernel address space layout randomization, um, which is a, which Linux is using as, a, as a comparison and Windows has been using as well, which is like the difference between running, you know, a different binary in the same place or the same binary being loaded to random places. And it's... it's I'm not... It's oh, there's a link to that. There's, uh, they a just, there's just it? a quick discussion down there at the bottom, but I think it, it's a it's a great point if you're interested in these kind of technologies. There's a lot of good words here, yes. acronyms that you can then go search and get an introduction to this space. Address 
randomization in general is very interesting and one of those things that's been, you know, there's been a lot of research poured in, in the last couple of years. So go check that I out. I see. A different kernel binary. Why? And so they must be randomizing where the various bits of code go. Yeah, right. And so it's like the the difference between randomizing that versus taking the same code and putting it in random locations. And so there's well, a lot there. Why not do both? Yeah. Why not do both? Exactly. So I think that's what um, that's probably Combine where things two. will go. Yeah, especially after OpenBSD yeah. has pioneered the way. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Well then, now we can go to the final piece of roundup, and then you're going to have to explain this one. I really like this one. Okay. It's Pokemon or Big Data. And what you're supposed to do is look at the name at the top of the field, top of the page, and decide, oh, this is, hey, is this Pokemon or this big data? And I actually have something different, but I think that's Pokemon. No, that's big data. I'm going to go Pick big, big data. data, yeah. Woo! Okay. So, now, next question. Next question. Seahorse. Oh, big data. Big data. <laughs> Visual spark. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. Next question. Titan. Titan. Oh. Big data. Titan, a distributed yeah. graph database. Okay, that uh, that one looks uh, like maybe it's Yeah, a that's Pokemon. big data. Oh, is it I big data? So. Okay, you go. You go. <laughs> Yay! Victory. Okay, next question. We, we got to get it wrong sooner or later. Next question. Gorbis. Oh, I don't. I think that's Pokemon. Oh, yep, look at that. Okay, next question. Hadoop. All right, well, that one's Hadoop easy. Hadoop is big data. Yeah. yeah. All right, next one. Delibird. That seems okay, like a Pokemon. Poke- Pokemon. Oh, we're pretty good at this. Yeah, I know. But I bet if you ask someone who didn't do tech, yeah, this would be a Yeah, let's just do big data. Let's, let's just do big data and, okay, we got to get run wrong. All right, here we go. Ah, there we go. That one I got yeah, wrong. that's what happened. So that's all this website is. So... This is pretty cool. Oh, that's adorable. I like that. I like that. Mm-hmm. I've seen some similar things where you can like generate a, um, a hipster JavaScript project name from like machine learned project results from pulled from GitHub or other things. But it does it just pokes a little bit of a fun at the challenge of naming things and just how hard that is in today's uh, modern world with so many tools. And it's just kind of a fun quiz to click through. Rikai wants credit for that. He gave it to us. Thank you, Rikai. That's Thank awesome. Thank you, Rikai. All hail, Rikai. As usual. Okay, well, uh, anything else you'd like to add before we get out of here? Uh, yeah, get rid of the screenshot. There we are. Huh. Hmm. Sorry, I was looking at the delayed. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. This is delayed. This is live. Um, I can't think of anything except that I really hope I have enough time to finish my certificate distribution by the time we next uh, air a show. Yeah, that would be good. All right. Well, and I'm not. I'm not really sure when I'm away next either. I'm gonna have to look at that. Yeah, we'll do some planning off air. Godspeed to you. I'm interested to see that yep. next script. Uh, thank you oh, very much, and be- thank you everyone else for joining us today. This has been episode 327 of the TechSnap program on July 11th, 2017. We really appreciate you joining us. If you want to see more of this program, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find a bunch of awesome shows, including User Error, which is doing a Dell XPS sweepstakes that you should go check out. Plus, there's like the backlogs of our shows, all the other shows, the past incarnation, our sister program, Free uh, BSD Now, which you should check out definitely. 
and a whole bunch more, including the contact page, the calendar, the IRC room. You can watch the shows live, which is a ton of fun. Go find out when we're live. Come join us. And you can find both of us on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne, and he is at TechSnap underscore Dan. Thank you for joining us, and uh, hey, we hope to see you here next week. <laughs>